ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello there, welcome to the most upstanding program on the National Broadcaster, The Minefield, where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Waleed Ali is my name, Scott Stevens is my co-host. Scott, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, is it appropriate to welcome you to your own show? Anyway, wow. um, today's show, let's just cut to the chase, it's all about integrity. Mm. And so it's in line with the spirit of cricket that I welcome you. <laughs> Have you followed this? It's the only topic of the week. Yeah. And I know you don't follow sport. I do not. Oh, you sort of, you've got a very strange relationship with sport. I do. Have you followed this? Not very much, no. Oh, I mean, Scott. look, no, I know the odd thing. It's also, it's bang on what we're talking about this week. It couldn't be more, per- like, we're not talking about the Ashes specifically. We're more using the Gladys Berejiklian stuff as the jumping point, but it's the same stuff, right? Go on. So, okay, well, I don't know how I don't know where to pitch this now because I don't know if you how much you know. But the, the Australia and England playing a series, you know what the Ashes are. Yes? I do know what the Ashes are. Yes. Excellent. Okay, we're off. <laughs> Australia's Australia's two nil up in the Ashes. You know that. I do know that. Okay, and in the most recent Test match, Australia won uh, what ended up being quite a close game, and there was a wicket on the last day that England lost in a manner that I think we have to concede is controversial. And the English have effectively accused Australia of violating the spirit of cricket. Mm. And they've been heckled as cheats and so on and so forth. Do you understand all yes, that? Yes, I do know all that. But you don't know enough about cricket or about that wicket to adjudicate on whether or not it was in... Because I think it's a fascinating discussion. <laughs> because of the specifics of the wicket, which I guess I can't go into with you. But mm. because there's an overarching question here about who exactly gets to define the spirit of cricket and in what circumstances do they get to define it? And there are a couple of things happening at once here. What I think is like the pantomime villainy and the, well, the whole pantomime of the outrage, right? And I think England are outraged in a pantomime way and Australia are cast as the pantomime villains, but at the same time, England are cast as the pantomime whingers and Australia are the pantomime victors. Like yeah, we just habitually yeah. win, all that sort of stuff's going on. At the same time as something quite serious, I think, is is going on here about the difference between rules and ethics. Mm. And I, rule, I just, rules and ethos, I think, is probably the better. Yeah, that's possibly right. All right, there you go. You're away. What do you want to say about it? I don't want to say anything at all about it because the... Oh, you disappoint me, Scott. Oh, look, I, I mean, one of, the, one of the bizarre things about sport generally, this is so not the topic for today. I think way. it is the topic. It's Scott. not. It is. There, there's no way in which this is... Look... I'll just say one of the bizarre things about sport is that it takes a particular type of fan or someone who has a particular love of the game, its history, its tradition, uh, not just its rules, but its ethos, who can watch a team that they love, that they habitually barrack for, do something which is counter to the spirit of the game or counter to the ethos of the sport, let's say, and which leads to their victory and to say, they really shouldn't have done it. It's part of the aesthetic experience of sport that when someone else, a team that you hate, say, violates the rules, then there are few things that are worse than that. It just expresses everything that's worse about that team, about the way that their style of play corrupts the integrity of the sport and so on. Uh, And when your own team does it, it's somehow justifiable. Uh, Or you have to understand the circumstances or you have to understand the history. Uh, It would take a very, it would take a particular type of fan, I think, to prefer the style of the game, the ethos of the game over one's particular side and to thereby crucify one side on the uh, but on, also on that particular hill. But cricket is a very hill. particular game. Yeah, it is. Isn't it? I feel like it's governed more by this notion of ethos. Like it's got all sorts of bizarre conventions that have nothing to do with the rules about what it is and is not proper play. What's happening here that's interesting, apart from just partisan bluster, is there genuinely seems to be a disagreement about what the ethos connotes, even though they're playing the same game and the allegation that's being made is this is clearly in breach. So in other words, one side is claiming there's 
the, the spirit of the game is clear and the other side is saying this but this doesn't in other words it can't be clear can it mm. and so there's a certain element or extent to which that the ethos is in the eye of the beholder <laughs> right and yeah. i I'm I'm genuinely staggered that you're you're not more into this. No, I'm just not. Because I thought this feeds into exactly the way you like to see the world, right? And I think convincingly so. That codes of conduct and rules and so on can only get you so far. Yes, that's right. Okay, so there has to be something about formation going on here. Mm, that's right. Right? That's prior to codes of conduct. But that at the same time as that, we have to acknowledge, don't we, that that formation, that sort of ethos, is itself open to partisan corruption. Yes, that's right. So I can't see England behaving this way if it weren't accompanied by a certain downward sneer at sort of the antipode mm, colony. That's right. There's a history to this response. Obviously, there's a history to yeah, this Yeah, and there's also a present, right? Yeah. So, the, you know, the, the slow decline of Britain... Brexit Britain, hmm. the idea of the English cricket team as the the team that's going to save Test cricket like that's its that's its role. It doesn't just want to play and win; it wants to save the like this sort of self declared saviour thing, this messianic role that it wants to arrogate to itself. That's connected to the the moment I think that England's in. I say England because that's the cricket team, mm. even though you could say Britain's in it. There's something about that. There's something about the the history and the historic relationship with Australia and Australia as the embodiment of, I don't know, vulgarity and so on. And so I think it raises interesting questions because once you start then invoking these things that exist beyond mere codes of conduct, you do run into this problem that they they can, especially across borders, um, cultural or political or, or whatever, they tend to be self-serving. Yeah. At the very least they can be, right? It's true. Two, two quick things. Uh, there is, however, the more recent history, uh, post-colonial times, let's say, um, yeah. of Australia not exactly covering itself in test cricket glory. Are you talking about Sandpaper Gate? I am indeed. Yes. Uh, and so there is a kind of... Which, uh, by the way, vastly bench. overstated, I will say. Yeah, I don't agree. Um, the other thing that I just want to say as a means of desperately pivoting onto a ground that I feel far more secure on is our <laughs> guest is in a studio someplace wondering, wait, did I just get the wrong brief? <laughs> what have I been no. asked to come and talk about? I don't, I don't know what our guest <laughs> thinks about this or whether or not he has any thoughts about it, but I <laughs> suspect he's... I think he's got all sorts of connections going off. Really? Yeah. All right, I'm going to let you free. But I think our audience will see the connection very clearly. Well, uh, maybe, maybe. All right, we'll go on. So we're not exactly talking about the handing out of the ICAC findings against Gladys Berejiklian and Daryl Maguire. Uh, to some extent, what's even more significant than that, although that was a truly significant event, I think, in, uh, let's say, post-2017 Australian politics. Uh, what's perhaps more interesting is that this just past is effectively the first full week by the time you're listening to this of Australia's uh, National Anti-Corruption Commission, a federal body, which is essentially the federal equivalent of ICAC. It's a standing independent body with something resembling Royal Commission powers with the ability to perform investigations, to initiate investigations, to make findings, and then to make recommendations about possible criminal charges should those be necessary. There are a few things that are really interesting to me about this, about the formation of this body, about some of the expectations that surround it. And I'm going to try to sort of phrase this or frame this quite precisely. And if you then want to make a connection with with test cricket, then please do be my guest. But this is, this is what's really, I'll confess, this is what's really kind of got my moral juices flowing. Mm. It strikes me that political corruption is the very definition of what we sometimes call in moral philosophy a wicked problem. It's the type of problem that may well be easily enough identified. But in the very act of trying to address that problem, to try to confine or to combat its deleterious or corrosive effects, 
one runs the risk of either ignoring other aspects of the problem and allowing those to run rife, or addressing the problem in such a way that it ends up deepening the problem itself. And so what you find is that in addressing a truly wicked problem, the problem, if you like, begins resisting, avoiding, or fighting back against the very, uh, the very attempt to try to solve it. There's a short history to this, and I think there's a long history to this. Uh, the short history is that, I mean, globally speaking, there is a widespread popular sense of there being a corruption problem in politics. And I think in the interest of this particular conversation, I think we probably confine things to political corruption. There are analogous issues. There are cognate questions that come up. But I think political Corruption raises the specific questions that I think should most exercise us today. Sorry, can I just interject here? Sure. Do you think most people would accept there's a corruption problem or an integrity problem? Because I, I fear the expansion of this word corruption. Mm-hmm, I agree. And I'm not sure people... Like, I think if you said, do you think our politics is corrupt... I think the only people would say yes to that would be people who either have a, you know, a particular political bent Mm -hmm. and burn with a particular strength of political flame. In other words, my side isn't in power. Yes, politics is corrupt. Well, yeah, or just that they've kind of got an anti-politics disposition in a way. That's right. right. Or people who are using the term corruption very lightly. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, that's right. But I don't know that many people would say our politics is corrupt and mean that with the full force of that word. Hmm. But if you ask people, do you think our politics has an integrity problem? I think lots of people would say yes to that. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I think you're right, but that's also because we don't know exactly what we mean when we say the word integrity. So I think you're right that corruption is usually overblown. Fears of corruption in a Didn't place like Australia. Loosely. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. The word the word is used to cover far too many different types of behavior and far too many things that may well be considered, okay, not ideal, maybe not as integral, but as part and parcel of representative politics. Like, for instance, what's sometimes referred to as pork barreling. You make promises to a particular yeah. electorate. You then try to uh, gain votes from that a particular uh, district or state or whatever, and then you give them what you effectively promised them. Yes, that promise is disproportionate. It may well not be an equitable distribution of resources. Is it really corrupt or is it part of the way that representative politics is played? I think one of the problems... Yeah, lobbying is the other example. That's right. I think that the, that's right. And donations and so on. Yeah. Yes. Well, you see, there we're getting into something that's a little bit different. I think one of the issues with integrity... I think political integrity is far more fluid and far more morally problematic in some ways. So, for instance, there are certain things that as a, represented, uh, as a representative figure, I may be required to do, which I myself might fundamentally disagree with. And yet there's a sense to which the vocation to which I've signed up and the vocation that I might see myself as having as a moral agent are different things. I may have to sacrifice my conscience for the sake of doing what otherwise must be done or under circumstances, under other other circumstances I wouldn't want to do, but under these circumstances I feel like I must do. Um, Integrity can also, a lack of integrity can also be used to kind of qualify a change of mind or a reversal of a policy. I just think, I mean, what do we mean by integrity and what do we think integrity's opposite is? Is hypocrisy the opposite? Well, there are certain times in which hypocrisy is part and parcel of representative politics, presenting one face and then sort of believing or feeling something else. I think where, where integrity is contrasted to deception to overt deception, uh, to using public opinion or appealing to public sentiment uh, in a manner that is wholly self-serving. So, for instance, so let me give this example. I've always been quite taken 
by uh, Hannah Arendt's diagnosis or analysis of the importance of the release of the Pentagon Papers, um, which we are kind of remembering fresh <laughs> these days. Um, she said that, that part of the peculiar perfidiousness of the deceit that successive administ- U.S. administrations entered into surrounding the Vietnam War was that they misled the public not in a manner that was justifiable in the name of some public good. I mean, you, you've used the example sometimes that, you know, is it licit for a government to deny that they're going to, say, float the currency or that they're going to devalue the, the dollar, for instance, uh, in order to prevent a run on the banks? Um, you could say there that, yes, it's a form of deception, but it's a form of deception that can be justified on the basis of there is a kind of public service that's being um, uh, met here. And the transparency would be disastrous. And the transparency would be disastrous, thank you. But with the Pentagon Papers, what they revealed is that there was overt deceit that was being engaged in, and there was no greater or higher telos to that deceit than the, than the protection of a, a kind of political image. In other words, things were being papered over. The public was being deceived. Soldiers lives were being wantonly wasted and political hay was being made of a catastrophic war and the truth wasn't being told precisely so that the government's image and its standing in the world could be preserved. Yeah, and so no legitimate public interest was being served. Yeah, I mean, you, you would say that there's a kind of breach of public integrity there, right? Would you call that corruption? No. No, ne- neither would I. But there is a fundamental requirement of truthfulness or there being, I mean, you and I have, I think, slightly different takes of the illicitness and legitimacy of deception in, in politics. But even if you said that there's sometimes where politicians are allowed to lie, you would have to say that that deception would have to be in the service of something that would be reasonably regarded by a great many people as being a kind of public good or being justifiable in terms of the public interest. Yeah. So I think you've identified well that integrity is a bit of a broad term that encompasses some quite disparate concepts. I think when we're talking about integrity as it turns up in Australian politics, or at least as it has in the last electoral cycle, we're not talking about the Pentagon Papers style of integrity or lack of integrity. Hmm. We're talking more about the sports rorts type. Yeah, that's right. Okay. In which case, what or, we're talking about... Or, or kickbacks for, um, you know, a minister yep. bumping a contract over to a prominent political donor, for instance. Right, which, which I guess is why people do veer into the language of corruption, because that's, how can we put it, corruption-y, right? Once, you, once you're in the world of kickbacks. I don't think that's um, corruption-y. I think that's corrupt. Okay, right. So I think that's why these two terms start to bleed and they start, they, they start to overlap a little. But I think what people are getting at when they talk about integrity is the idea of distortion in some way. Mm, that's right. So let's think of integrity not just as being, you know, being upstanding, but integrity as in the sense of structural integrity, right? And so the opposite of that would be what? It would be structural weakness or mm. defect or imperfection. And the concept of distortion is part of that. So if you can distort the way that policy is made through your donations or policy making becomes distorted by the drawing of electoral boundaries and the political interests that gather around those, then that's, I think, where the notion of integrity starts to come in. I wouldn't want to call it corrupt in every instance. No. no um, and this is partly the defence that you always get of pork barrelling, right, is that everybody does it. This is actually how... And there is actually a democratic argument for how this... That's what democracy... That's what it is, right? That's how it functions. And it functions that way for reasons, because this is how interests, sometimes selective interests, get represented. And if it just so happens that the, the numbers or the chips fall a certain way, then that's the way they fall. I'm not enamoured of that argument, but that you can make that argument, right? But I think that's what we're gesturing at when we're talking about integrity. But here's the problem, right? And this is where I think the, the cricket example is completely <laughs> analogous. <laughs> okay. You laid down a challenge, Scott. I did, I did. What was I doing? 
What's the first defence you hear whenever a sports rorts comes up or something like that, the car park stuff or whatever? Apart from everybody does it, the first defence you hear is this was entirely legal. Hmm. What's the first defence the Australian cricket team made when charged with foul play or sharp practice, I think is the term that some of the English prefer, um, in claiming that wicket? Dare the rules. In other words... By the way, I'm not equating sports sports to what the Australian cricket team did. Mm. I think what the Australian cricket team did was actually fine, but leave that aside. In other words, there's this thing that happens with integrity in that it's seeking to police something that exists beyond rules, isn't it? And, And my worry for the way that the integrity and politics discussion has proceeded up until now, it'll be interesting to see what happens now that we actually have a corruption commission at the federal level that will investigate and I guess seek to apply rules in a particular way, is that I think a lot of the incidents that were driving the clamour for this weren't actually rule breaches. They were just things that felt a bit off. It was quite, to use the phrase that you know I hate, it was quite anchored in the pub test. Mm -hmm. This feels wrong. I feel like it shouldn't be going on. I want there to be a way to police it. But the problem is you can't police it really with the application of rules without things becoming actually quite fundamentally different, quite stifled, quite legalistic. And then you've actually changed, (laughs) to return, I guess, the cricket metaphor, the spirit of the game. Mm -hmm. Okay, you lost me. So we end up in this situation because people are prepared to play fast and loose with the spirit of things. But there isn't really a clean answer to it in the form of the application of tribunals and laws and rules and so on and so forth. And so what we're, I think, asking for in public life is a form of public life that doesn't have recourse to the rules, that doesn't have recourse to what's permissible and what isn't, what's legal and what isn't, but has some kind of, I don't know, inchoate sense of what's proper beyond all of that. Wow. And in an adversarial environment, these things Mm. are apt to fall apart, aren't they? Hmm. All right. So many things to say. Um, I'm desperate to get to our guest. Let me try to... Can I respond to two points? Sure. I'll try to do it quickly. Look, one of the wonderful things, I think, about the formation of the NAACC, the National Anti-Corruption Commission, is that it's going to bring a very precise remit to what is and is not corruption, what should and should not be investigated as corrupt behavior. So I think there's going to be a kind of sharpening of public sensibilities in and through its operations, which probably means that in the short term, perhaps even in the medium term, the public is going to be for the most part disappointed by the operations of the NAACC. In other words, they want something that is going to be... uh, let me just say it quite bluntly. What the public is going to want is punishment. Or exoneration, but yeah. Or exoneration, thank you. But they're going to want something that either finds guilt or that finds innocence. Um, and part of the desire for these hearings, for instance, being transparent, is because one of the things that drives public interest in anti-corruption measures or commissions uh, is the desire for there being some kind of uh, punishment or exoneration of Uh, a side of politics that we like or a side of politics that we do not. However, the whole point, the telos, if I can return to that, of anti-corruption measures is not punishment. You could say that it's fundamentally deterrence. So the whole point of there being anti-corruption investigations, recommendations, is to try to dissuade public officials from engaging in corrupt behavior, which means that, but that's not the ultimate telos. That's not the the, the, the final uh, cause, as Aristotle would have put it. That's the penultimate. The final cause is the restoration of public trust in political office. Now, that I think, that is served in a very, very particular way. If you see public concern over corruption as not so much being a concern over, over legality or the sort of over uh, the overapplication of kind of legalistic conceptions of what is and is not licit within representative life. Um, the, the greater concern is that politicians fundamentally cannot be trusted 
to use the trust that they've been given by virtue of their representative function in a matter that is going to be equitable, that's going to be transparent, that's going to be answerable to the people, and fundamentally that's going to be even-handed or impartial in the sense of representing uh, all people within its care equally, not just particular or vested interests. So I think the whole point, if we understand the telos of anti-corruption measures as being the restoration of public confidence within Uh, public office within democratic politics, then I think what we should then expect from uh, anti-corruption measures, commissions, investigations, should be very, very specific, I believe. And this raises why I think anti-corruption measures or the problem of political corruption is itself a wicked problem. I mean, um, we've talked about this before, Waleed, that uh, suspicion of conspiracy And suspicion of corruption is as old as democratic politics itself. There's always been this sense that that democracy is a kind of veneer. And the very fact that you're elevating, quote-unquote, common people into high office means that there's going to be an irresistible temptation for, quote-unquote, common people to behave in a manner that's going to be sort of aristocratic-like. In other words, to give preferential treatment, to, to use public office for private gain. Um, and there's going to be a kind of diminution of the capacity, the, the social stock of trust as the result. So, I mean, right back at the very beginning of the French Revolution, right at the very, very beginning of the American democratic experiment, there's always been this idea that behind the scenes there are secret people running the show. There's certain sort of people gaining uh, off the back of public credulity. Um, in our time, we've seen that kind of that marriage of democracy and fear of corruption further expressed through the very partisanization or politicization of supposedly independent uh, measures that are used to combat corruption. We're seeing this at the moment in the United States with some of the investigations surrounding Donald Trump or some of the scrutiny surrounding the U.S. Supreme Court. And already here uh, in Australia, there's been a concern that these anti-corruption measures are wide open to being used as a kind of political attack dog, a way of of persecuting your enemies. And I think in both cases, what's being lost is that the point of anti-corruption is the restoration in the belief, in the capacity of political representation to serve something like a common good for the faith that people invest in their politicians, in public servants, to be justified. And this then means that there is a tension. And after, after this tension, I'll shut up. That on the one hand, you want to see certain principles of transparency being honored. You want, I mean, one of the ways of honoring public faith in high office is by shining a light on those dark shadows, uh, on those dark corners where supposedly the deals are done. But unfortunately, in an age of what's sometimes called ocular democracy or spectatorial democracy, where critical citizens uh, see themselves as having a vocation to expose the fraudulence of politicians, that that becomes part of the democratic duty. I think one of the ways that transparency and calls for transparency can go wrong is that they don't add to the stock of public faith in high office, but rather through the very cultivation of hypercritical citizens they reduce that confidence. The the very process of uh, the weeding out of corruption leads to the suspicion that there's further corruption that we just can't quite see yet. Yeah, so you lose faith in the whole enterprise. That's exactly right, which is why I think the NAWC, the way that it's progressed and certainly the appointment of Justice Brereton as the commissioner, I, I mean... I think there are two things that are really important there. One is a, uh, a partisanly unimpeachable figure who, who cannot be co-opted by one side of politics or another. Um, but also the very way that what should count as corruption within the commission's remit has been defined in a way that it eludes or it's meant to elude so many of the ways in which that commission could be used or exploited or abused as a way of serving one side of politics or another. So, I mean, for, for me, I just think the whole thing about kind of the rules of the game or the spirit of this being overly legalized, I think kind of misses, with respect, really, the fundamental issue here, which is how can 
an anti-corruption commission go about its business in a way that does in fact serve the end of restoring public faith without operating in such a way that it leads to paradoxically a kind of further collapse or further suspicion that this is a vocation that doesn't deserve public confidence in the first place. Yeah, but that depends on how it wants to draw up its remit and its rules, right? Mm, that's or at least how the government wants to do that. Yes. I think anyway you cut it, you're returning to the same problem, which is the capacity of rules to regulate. So in other words, the scepticism, you know, we've got a guest. I'll get to them. How about we do that? All right. Yeah. Who's we, our guest, Scott? We've talked ourselves in circles. Hopefully our guest will lead us out of the cul-de-sac. A.J. Brown is Professor of Public Policy and Law in the School of Government and International Relations at Griffith University. He's the co-leader of the Center for Governance and Public Policy's Integrity Leadership and Public Trust Program. He's also, conveniently enough, a board member of Transparency International. A.J., which makes you pretty much the perfect person to have on the minefield. Thanks so much for joining us again. Well, thank you very much, Roy and HG. I always grew up wanting, <laughs> wondering how I would end up on an episode of This Sporting Life, and now finally it's happened. He's on board, Scott. He's on board. You've so disappointed me, HG. I, I thought you were going to come to my side and leave the whole cricket nonsense. I'm afraid not, because yeah. I think uh, Waleed was quite right to point to some of the fundamentals of, of, of any situation like that. In terms of the distinction between the rules and the ethos, I think that's that goes to the heart of what you've already been discussing, including in relation to the National Anti-Corruption Commission and the role of these agencies. Um, but I think Waleed also asked that key question about the uh, the stumping of our good friend, the English cricketer, um, which was who decides. And and I think that's a really interesting situation where where issues of awareness, deception, um, you know, who believed which rules applied at that particular moment and you need to have an independent uh, umpire, basically, to be able to say, okay, weighing all of that up, uh, this is this is where the public interest lies. This is where public trust and confidence can lie in an assessment of what was right and wrong about this, that situation. And and it's absolutely true. The rules are one part of it, but they're only one part of it. Um, and certainly when we start talking about politics and public office, just as much as cricket, but probably even more so, then, uh, then the rules are critical, but um, there's a hell of a lot more at play than, than just the rules, that's for sure. We see this actually, I mean, I think the constitution is a really interesting example in this regard. So much of our constitutional life in Australia is governed by convention. And I know Greg Craven, the constitutional scholar, has made this point where if you were to distill convention and reduce it to writing, it would suddenly become explosive, right? The convention, for example, being an example being that the governor general acts on the advice of the government, etc. But then the government general does have a power to dismiss a government, as we saw, and so on. But if you tried to reduce the role of the governor general to writing in that way, that would probably trigger some kind of constitutional crisis. There'd certainly be a huge constitutional debate. In other words, we need this in our life, don't we? We need the ambiguities. But the ambiguities can only work on the basis of some kind of shared cultural understanding. My problem, and I think Scott, you know, despite trying desperately to avoid the way I frame this, has kind of articulated it quite well is that what happens to that shared understanding or how exactly do we happen upon it in a world of hyper-partisanship where actually what there isn't is shared understanding so much as double standards. I mean, we barely share our standards with ourselves. <laughs> what, what matters is, is the circumstances that precipitate it. And you're seeing this in the cricket example, right? Suddenly Australians are out there looking for every possible example of hypocrisy I remember when the English coach did this when he was a player. I remember when Johnny Bairstow did that when he was a player and so on, right? And then an argument develops about, well, that's different to this and that's different from that and whatever. And you end up having these arguments because really what's happening is the desperate attempt to kind of exempt or distinguish the application of standards in one area from another. This only works when there's kind of an overarching shared telos. We... You can imagine how complicated this is across cultures, but we, can we even do it within our own political environment if it's becoming increasingly polarised, AJ? Well, I mean, I think we can, and I think some of what we're talking about in terms of, uh, as Scott said, the definition of corrupt conduct or corruption under the new National Anti-Corruption Commission and comparing that to 
the definitions that operate at some of our state levels or internationally, but at state levels, particularly in New South Wales, with this, you know, the recent findings in relation to Gladys Berejiklian and Daryl Maguire, then you see some of those tensions, but, but I think you also see some of those answers. What is really telling about the New South Wales situation is that fundamentally um, what the law provides for in terms of enabling that the Anti-Corruption Commission in New South Wales to do its job is to have a combination of principles and rules in the definition of how we identify what corrupt conduct is. And the principles are, has there been an abuse of trust or a breach of trust? You know, that's a very, you can't just answer that legally. Uh, That requires a, a calculation of what were the public duties? What is the public interest? Has that been transgressed? or breached or um, compromised in that wicked problem sense that, that Scott pointed to? Um, has there been favouritism? Has there been preferential treatment in circumstances where uh, the public expectation and, and the rules and the laws and the whatever, the, the, the budget, whatever it is, uh, actually required a degree of what internationally we call ethical universalism, that sense that here were, here were decisions that were meant to be being made um, for the public good or for the good of a particular public purpose? And has there been some distortion? Literally, that, the, the term that you used, Waleed, I think was very accurate. Some distortion of that in a way which is uh, less than honest or intended to or, or calculated to result in some personal or private or purely political gain. So they're the principles on one hand, and I think they raise all of those ethos questions. Uh, But then there's also the rules. Um, In New South Wales, as well as breaching some of those fundamental principles to identify conduct as being corrupt, it either needs to be criminal or or capable of leading to the termination or the sacking of somebody, or, um, and this is is where the rubber really hits the road, under the New South Wales ICAC's legislation, a substantial breach or a significant breach of an applicable code of conduct, such as ministerial standards requiring ministers to disclose and declare and avoid conflicts of interest in their official decision-making. So there we have it, um, because there we have a debate about, okay, does that rule about ministerial standards apply to former Premier Gladys Berejiklian in relation to her own conflict of interest as now found factually to have existed? Um, And so, so you see... You do see some of what, what you were pointing to there, Scott, in terms of people trying to argue that that system is is not sound or is is somehow corrupt in and of itself because um, what, what we've seen is former Premier Berejiklian saying, no, those rules don't apply to me, therefore you can't catch me for the breach of the principles because the rules don't apply. That's the submission that she made to the Commission, that the, the ministerial standards of her own Cabinet don't apply to her because she wasn't a minister, she was a premier. Um, so I think what that, what that really brings out in sharp relief is that if it, if it just becomes a game of the rules and what the law says, then, then it's very easy to miss the point, which is actually the principles. Uh, all the rules can ever do is, is help provide structure to the circumstances of of whether principles are being breached uh, and then consequences for those breaches if they're found to occur, criminal or civil or whatever. Um, But um, the principles are actually the important thing. And the really interesting thing, um, Scott, I think you described the the definition of or the jurisdiction of the new National Anti-Corruption Commission as involving some sort of level of precision to, uh, to our understanding of what corrupt conduct is. The really interesting thing about the National Anti-Corruption Commission's definition of corrupt conduct is that it's got the principles, but the rules are actually, whether the law has been breached mm. is actually a much less significant. In fact, it's, it's not there directly in the way that it is in the New South Wales settings. And so the definition of corrupt conduct, certainly if things are criminal um, or there have been breaches of law, then the Commission will be able to identify that, use that to much more confidently and persuasively um, report on the fact that there have been breaches of the principles. <laughs> That'll be much easier. But the fundamental job of the National Anti-Corruption Commission is, 
is actually focused on the principles. Has there been a breach of trust? Has there been, or could there, could this conduct uh, adversely affect the honesty or impartiality of the exercise of public powers and public functions, et cetera, et cetera? And I, and I think this is going to really continue to bring a focus, like you said, Scott, uh, it's going to, it forces us to focus on what is right and what is wrong about this, about particular conduct uh, in a way that doesn't just fall back on, well, was it criminal or not? Was it a breach of the code of conduct or not? Um, it's actually, let's think about those first principles. And I think that's going to, I, I hope that that will really help continue to push us down the track towards more sophisticated understandings of, of what's right and what's wrong. Um, and that that can then contribute to findings and outcomes, which do end up supporting a clear idea of what the public trust is and therefore how it's being sustained. Mm, Wow. AJ, I'm wondering about transparency in the middle of all of this. So one of the things that has left a lot of people who otherwise support the formation of the National Anti-Corruption Commission, uh, left them somewhat dissatisfied, uh, is the exceptional circumstances clause concerning compulsory public hearings. I realize that there is, I mean, there is a strong case. If the point really is how best to restore or to honor the public's trust that it's placed in representative figures or in public office, I realize that transparency, being able to see what is going on, being able to hear the testimony, being able to have that reported on accurately, faithfully, there's a a strong argument for that. I do wonder, however, in an age of, I referred to it before as kind of oculatory democracy or critical citizenship or spectatorial democracy, when there is a kind of, I'm using a technical sort of idea here from the French philosopher Pierre-Rosanne Vallon, when there's a kind of counter-democratic impulse that goes into the very self-perception of citizens as keeping the bastards honest, as wanting to see political corruption uh, revealed, exposed, dismantled, punished. There's sometimes in the, very, in the very desire for punishment, for exposure, for transparency, there can sometimes be a lack of proper sense about what the goal of that transparency is in the first place. So here's, here's my question. With these calls for transparency, for there to be a kind of public visibility for many of the uh, goings-on or hearings of the NAWC, is there also a strong case to be made, and maybe this is only a case that could be made after a certain period of time, for this commission just kind of, I don't want to say silently, but discreetly going about its business and the public being reassured by the fact that it's going about its business and that claims of corruption or allegations are in fact being investigated. So I'm wondering, is there a sense to which the very call for transparency, for exposure, can somehow have the deleterious effect of confirming a kind of anti or even counter-democratic suspicion about the prevalence of corruption in the first place? Well, I think you probably answered some of your own question there, Scott, because that question of how are people going to have confidence that that the commission is going about doing its job quietly and behind the scenes, um, there'll only be that confidence if there's some measure of transparency that means that people can definitely be confident that, that, that the commission is actually doing its job and that things aren't being swept under the carpet. I think for most citizens, their concept of what's being swept under the carpet is not necessarily that they know about all the gory details but that somebody is is watching and somebody is making sure that the job is being done. So I think you're right to have identified this as involving a really wicked problem because there is at least the apparent risk that um, if everybody, you know, the more corruption we expose, then the more that we'll believe the whole system is corrupt, even if it's not, that becomes even more corrupting. Everybody's in it for themselves, so I'll be in it for myself as well. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and perhaps in some circumstances that, that could be a legitimate 
sort of evolution or development or force, but bringing it back to different cultures, and, and I think you've been right, both of you, to point out that this varies. Um, if I think about it from what we know from our research and experience about Australian culture, then I think there's two things that really stand out. One is that people understand that power corrupts. I mean, that's this goes to, to democracy itself. People understand a lot of what you said before, Scott, about, about the dynamics of democracy. People know that where, where there's power, then there's the risk of corruption. But they don't necessarily want to play, I mean, some might do, but I think it's probably a minority, play that sort of role that you were describing, Scott, of being the the arbiters and the investigators and the exposers themselves. They want to know that somebody is keeping the bastards honest. Hmm. But I think most Australians would prefer if somebody else did that for them. I don't know whether you want to describe it as as laziness or just the complacency that goes delegation having, delegation delegation. <laughs> delegation democracy is all built on delegation um, uh, so i think that in fact this has been well documented theoretically and i think it's supported empirically by two great australian criminologists john and val braithwaite where they describe it as a process of institutionalizing distrust in order to enculturate trust mm, interesting so so we set up these institutions based on the presumption that there is a risk of corruption, if not a likelihood. Um, and But then having set up that institution that's based on a presumption of distrust, that that institution will then do, do its job to make sure that we can all trust the system as a whole and public office, office holders, you know, individually, because the system is there to protect against that risk. And I think that's the way quite a lot of institutions work in our society, you know, from the police to other regulation, et cetera. So it's no surprise that it should and, and can and does work in the anti-corruption sphere. Um, and I think that's part of the answer to the wicked problem. Uh, you've got to get the balance right and you've got to get the transparency balance right in that. Um, but I think that's doable. So there is, I think there's an answer to that question. But the other part of the equation that I think is, is part of the answer to what you were saying, Scott, is that I, I don't think that most citizens are what they really want to see come out of these sorts of processes is necessarily punishment. I think what most people want to see is accountability. Hmm. Uh, and accountability breaks down for most people, I think, as meaning two things. One is answers, just knowing what went on so we can see it. And then secondly, consequences if, if there have been breaches or things have gone wrong, consequences. And that cons those consequences might involve punishment, but they might just involve, okay, that was a grey area. We're not sure if that person should have run out that um, batsman or not, whether that was quite right or wrong. But we don't really want to have to go through this again, therefore what are we going to do? You know, maybe we have to install a uh, video umpire and then go back and check on what actually happened before we make the umpire's ruling as to whether the over was really over or not, et cetera. That's mm. how we've dealt with it in, the fo in football, <laughs> going back to this sporting life. That's how we've dealt with some of that in football, um, to, to buttress and scaffold the role of the umpire in order to give everybody confidence. Um, I don't know. Yeah, but cricket, that's, that's I don't know that cricket really them. needs that. But, but I well, think the answer is that it's the consequences. It's people want to know that okay, if there's a problem here, it'll be fixed so that it's manageable or it doesn't happen again. Um, if there's compensation mm. and there's lots of, I think that's where what you were discussing before about the difference between integrity at one end of the spectrum and corruption at the other end really brings that out. Corrupt conduct should lead to a range of consequences um, where because corruption should rest on fundamental tests of has there been dishonesty or has there been um, a perversion, a, a real distortion for the purposes of the gain of individuals or particular groups or for political gain, then it's more important that, that individuals who have acted dishonestly or breached trust, that there are some consequences that are personal to them. But otherwise, in relation to big integrity lapses and breaches like the robo-debt fiasco, for example, where really there was no corruption involved that, it, that that I know that anyone's pointed to. There was a legal but, breach, though, which kind of sorted that out, right? 
Well, yeah, but but I think that's your that was your earlier point. You can have all sorts of legal breaches which aren't necessarily corrupt, but yeah. they still need you still need to have accountability, and there needs to be consequences. And maybe individuals need to be held responsible, but it's not corruption. But they may yeah. still need to be held responsible. But there's other much more fundamental issues that explain why was there such a massive integrity failure, a structural integrity, like you said, will lead. You know, the complete breakdown of the way that social security systems are meant to work and policies and, and social justice and uh, complete breakdown. I mean, you don't get wor- a worse integrity failure, I, I don't think. Um, but you can have... In- that's a, you that's can, a, you, you can, know what, though? You can that's have a really serious integrity example. failures without corruption. That's the, that's the key point. Sure, I agree. I just don't know that I would have called robot an integrity failure so much as a policy failure, perhaps a moral failure. I have to think about it. I mean, I I'm not saying it, you're wrong. It's just that yeah. that's not how I'd have thought to frame it. It's just. Well, I, th- um, I think it goes to your very accurate analogy about the structural integrity of government and how government works. Some of it's a political mm. and policy failure. Some of it, the reasons for those failures that then had such dire consequences, including a, a complete disregard for lawful authority and lawfulness, but also fundamental unfairness and oppressiveness in the way that that uh, a public service agency that's meant to be built on opposite principles of justice and equity ends up operating operating, ties back to um, some real structural collapse in the independence of the public service in its, it being made subservient to the politics of the day. Right. And and so these are all things a commission can't really hope to address, right? Because I think that's absolutely right. And, and I think this is, it goes back to what Scott was saying about unrealistic expectations. I think, I hope that the debate about some of the first cases that the National Anti-Corruption Commission might be looking at can help distinguish between the types of things that do involve or allegedly involve or could involve uh, the abuse of, public office, of entrusted power of public office for personal or private or political gain um, versus some of these things like in RoboDebt, which need other remedies, need other agencies to define, well, what's good administration, what's bad administration and why, mm. uh, that doesn't necessarily have to go near that being that sort of corruption level. So we're, we, we, no, we need to make sure that we don't somehow expect the National Anti-Corruption Commission to be responsible for doing a, a whole lot of things that that in fact other parts of the system are meant to be doing and should be doing. Yeah. I am fascinated to see what happens with the Anti-Corruption Commission. It it feels beset with the potential for paradoxical outcomes. I think we've seen that to some extent in ICAC in New South Wales. There's a a very tricky calibration exercise, I think, to go on here and be fascinating to see how it plays out at the federal level, particularly given its reliance on principles rather than rules, as you've uh, identified, AJ. So there's so much to watch. Uh, and maybe we'll reconvene um, when it's been going for a few years and see what happens. If indeed we're still on. I'm being told by the producer the full-time whistle has blown. There she goes, completely (laughs) getting a metaphor from the wrong sport, but I guess we'll call it stumps. Uh, We're out of time. Uh, Stumps is the end of a day. Don't worry about it, Scott. AJ Brown is Professor of Public Policy and Law at Griffith University, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now at an end. Uh, We'll see you next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.